Jan Price talks to the movers and shakers in the film business. The Jan Price Show, all about movies. You're listening to The Jam Price Show, all about movies, and today my guest is writer, producer, and director, Nancy Bursky, and we're going to be talking about her wonderful, fascinating new documentary, Desperate Souls, Dark City, and the Legend of Midnight Cowboy. Welcome back to the show, Nancy. Good to be here, Jan. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. When I saw this at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival in February, I knew immediately I wanted to have you back on the show uh, to discuss this, because it really really is a very fascinating documentary and lots lots to dig into here. We'll do a deep dive. My first question for you really is, how did this project come about? Why were you attracted to it? How did you get involved with it? Well, there are a number of answers to that question. The simplest one is that I happened to be talking to the author of a book that had just come out called Shooting Midnight Cowboy, who had also written a book on the searchers and high noon. His name is Glenn Frankel. And I was very interested in the fact that he spends a lot of time not just on this on this subject, this specific subject, like the particular film, but also on its context, its climate, the, the, the period it was written, and so on and so forth. As it turns out, this book was coming out just around that time that he and I were speaking, and that's the one that really grabbed my attention. But a deeper answer to your question is that I'm also very interested in why art lasts. Why does art resonate in the first place? And why does it continue to resonate many, many years after? This was a perfect example. Midnight Cowboy was a perfect example of a film that has that affected people deeply when it first came out and continues to do so. So I really want to ask that question. So his book came out right around the time that I was thinking about doing something like that. It all came together. Again, a serendipity, right? <laughs> that yes. it all came together so perfectly. This is not a film that anybody could slightly go to sleep to <laughs> For half a second because they're going to miss a lot of things. The whole film is gripping and there's so many different things that you touch upon. Let's talk about you, you intersperse the Vietnam War, what was going on with the marches across the country, what was going on in Chicago uh, 1968, poli- the political climate that was going on. I mean, this film is the zeitgeist of that particular place and time. And there was, to me, there's no other era that, oh gosh, you know, changed the world basically. I mean, there's so many things. But this film is one of the films that also changed the way films were being made at that time. It was the first of a whole new genre of filmmaking in New York. So let's talk a little bit more about that. How did it change? Why did it change? Why did this Why this film at this particular time? Well, you know, it's funny. My, my film actually answers that question. And so it's a, an hour and a half film. It's hard to answer it simply now, but I'll do my best. I think the the idea that these things were in the air, all of these these issues that were being explored, the way people were kind of interrogating the politics of the time and the events that were taking place, the kind of maybe the first time that people were really asking deep questions about authority and wondering whether or not maybe it's time to push back on things that were going on. This hadn't happened really before. You know, we'd come out of the Second World War in the late 40s and in the 50s, people were pretty content to just kind of go along with whatever the system and the governments suggested we should go along with. And then you have Vietnam, and Vietnam suddenly causes so much disruption. There's so many people that don't believe in that war that I think for the first time, society in general, and particularly young people, began to say, maybe we don't have 
have to go along with this. Maybe there are questions to be asked. And so there's a kind of subversive atmosphere, this penetrating society, which I think gives John Schlesinger, the director of Midnight Cowboy, license to be somewhat subversive in his movie making. The film is not about Vietnam. The film is not about the protest movements, but the film is about asking questions and dealing with a reality, dealing with the world in a much more realistic way than had been done previously to, to that time. So all of these things are factors, not one in particular, but all of them. And that was the challenge in making this film was how to pull that all together, how to weave it all together so that you feel like by the time we get to 1968, when he's making this film and it comes out in 1969, that that film is almost inevitable, that it had to happen then. You've come up with some really wonderful archival footage in this film, particularly some of the interviews with John Schlesinger himself. So how did you get that archival footage footage to begin with? And yeah, let's just talk about that. Let's Well, you know, any most documentary film films have great researchers working with them. And so I have to credit a number of researchers that helped us excavate that footage. Can I go back and say that again? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that many documentary filmmakers work with terrific researchers, and I really credit them for helping us find all that footage. In this case, in particular, there's a terrific interview that was made by John Schlesinger's nephew, Ian Baruma, who also is in the movie. And it was an interview that was made, was recorded because he was writing a book on his uncle called Conversations with John Schlesinger. And fortunately, he did record that. So much of what you hear is that interview. Mm-hmm. And had never been heard before. Years ago, when I was studying film in New York, I got to meet him. Uh, he had just done a film with Shirley MacLaine, and right now the title is not coming to me, but quite an amazing man himself. And so this film kind of, you know, well, obviously, this for people who've never seen the film, let's, let's hope there's people who are listening to the show have seen Midnight Cowboy, but just, just so, just in case they haven't, or refresh their memories, why don't we talk a little bit about what Midnight Cowboy is all about and how how that changed many things in the movie industry. I guess the simplest description is really it's, it's about two men who come together um, who are both in the lowest ebb of their lives. One is a, a kind of naive cowboy that's just, he's not really a cowboy, but he's a naive guy who's come from Texas to make it in New York and he thinks he's going to make it with a lot of women. He's a hustler and he's going to make it with rich women and that's how he's going to, that's where he's going to find his success. And he hooks up with this con man called Ratza Rizzo. He's played with, by Dustin Hoffman, who's also a kind of hustler, but kind of living on the streets and really, again, at a very low point in his life. And the two of them come together and they form a kind of bond, which is a very unusual one. Um, and it's important to stress that these two guys are not gay. There are other gay men in the film. And so John Schlesinger is exploring that in his movie, um, not as overtly as he does later in Sunday Bloody Sunday. But um, these two come together to help each other. And basically, they are both saved in the act of caring for each other. And I think that's what gives this film so much resonance. It's a gritty film. It looks at New York in a way that most people hadn't seen it before. Um, this is somewhat due to John Schlesinger having come, he was an outsider, he was observing New York as he did for, you know, he was he was a documentary filmmaker. So before he started making a feature films, so it wasn't unusual for him to kind of observe New York the way he did. But I think that's a turning point 
in filmmaking to look at the world in that clearly realistic manner. But I really think what gives this film its resonance and its lasting power is the compassion that these two men had for each other. Yeah. Again, the Desperate Souls title of this uh, documentary, uh, you know, it is, it's it, bottom line underneath it all, again, is about love and compassion, right? Mm-hmm. Aren't those the subjects that we all want, you know, love is the root of everything, pretty much, but how these two men end up together. What a wonderful cast. And I love the fact, um, it was too bad you couldn't get Dustin Hoffman. I understand that his schedule wouldn't allow you to interview him, but you do have John Voight, the wonderful Brenda Vaccaro, which I've always loved her, Bob Balaban, and Jennifer Salt. Um, let's talk about... Uh, John Voight, because he's very emotional discussing this film. All of them were fabulous, and I want to talk about each one of them. But uh, let's talk about how, you know, when you approached him about interviewing him for this film, what was his reaction? You know, he he understands that this was a game changer for him. I mean, this was his one of his first important roles. He, He had done television before this. But this was his breakout role. And so, you know, it's understandable that he would be emotional talking about it. I I think it was a game changer for all of them. And um, they they look back on it today as, you know, one of the most important films they'd ever worked on. Um, I think one of the things also that... I don't know, that helps in the in the making of our film is that so many of them, John Voigt, Jennifer Salt, Brenda Vaccaro, and some of the cultural um, commentators that we, we have on board, they're all so invested in it. You know, you don't feel that they are just being interviewed or they are talking heads. Um, you almost get the feeling that they're talking with each other, that they are they are having a conversation with each other people who all care deeply about this film and not only what it did for society in the history of filmmaking, but how it changed their lives individually. Yeah. I mean, again, it was just very interesting to see John Voigt get so emotional in, in, in this interview. Uh, and again, Brenda Vaccaro, I, um, let's talk about her character in the film and how she felt about it at this stage, even all these years later. Well, you know, she she too feels so strongly about the film and John Schlesinger. She talks about it all the time. She'll be at um, our opening on Friday night. She'll be doing a Q&A with me and with Lucy Sant. Oh, um, you know, again, she's she just her life was changed after Midnight Cowboy. Everybody's life changed after Midnight Cowboy, I think. You know, let's talk also the fact that this got an X rating. Was it one of the first? Well, okay, I don't know if it was the first film to get an X rating, but certainly the first film to get an X rating to win the Oscar for Best Picture. That in itself was tremendously amazing. So let's talk a little bit about that story, about the producer, um, Jerome Hellman. Is that who the, the producer of Midnight Cowboy was? Is that correct? Jerry, Jerry Hellman, yes. Jerry Hellman, um, yeah. it, it, but it was the ex- an executive from um, United Artists who produced this film who actually requested the X rating because he had been mistakenly warned by a psychiatrist who we mentioned in our movie when we're talking about it in this, this part of our movie that this was a film that was going to negatively impact young men, vulnerable young men. Um, it, 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 it makes 
the gay life look attractive to them and they're going to suddenly become gay. It's too gay friendly, all of that. And so they decided to hedge their bets and request an X rating. So no one would accuse them of doing that. Um, of course, none of that is true. And, um, and not long after people realized that the whole thing was kind of ridiculous and, uh, they, when asked if they would change the movie in order to get an R, both Jerry Hellman and John Schlesinger said no. And they gave him an R anyway. Um, so, uh, you know, the whole thing is, is part of the legend of Midnight Cowboy, actually. <laughs> it is, it is, it is. You, you talked earlier about John Schlesinger being a documentary filmmaker. Um, and this film has that feel of a documentary, the way he filmed it. Let's go into a little bit more detail about that and the way he filmed it, that the color that he used in this film. I mean, it did, did show New York. And, and I'm from the East Coast. I lived in northern New Jersey at the time when I used to go to New York all the times during that time period. So I'm very familiar with what New York looked like at that particular point in time. Of course, I don't think it's changed that much right now. And you're there. And so you well, actually, I, I would say the Times Square has changed a lot. I, yeah, I think that's the true. Square, the, yeah. the Times Square that you see in Midnight Cowboy was very gritty. And it was a hangout for hustlers. Um, and, and, you know, the John Voight character, who's kind of pretending to be a cowboy, He's not alone. You know, there were other guys that looked just like that on on 42nd Street, according to John Schlesinger's view of it. Um, But I I think, you know, you have to give Schlesinger a lot of credit as a documentary filmmaker, former documentary filmmaker, as well as the cinematographer, Adam Hollander, who was I think it was one of his first feature films. He was Polish. Um, He had been hired by Schlesinger at the um, recommendation of. Uh, Roman Polanski, and his feeling was that it was important. But originally, they wanted to shoot it in black and white, and the studio wasn't comfortable with that. So they shot in color, but they shot it in a kind of desaturated color. Mm-hmm. And um, Adam Slesinger, I'm sorry, let's go back and say that again. Adam Hollander um, used an, a very open lens. He, he used as much available light as he could to give us a feeling of really being there. So, and I think you get that. I think that's one of the things that makes this film distinctive. It doesn't have a slick feeling. You really do feel like you're there. Right. Yeah, it does. Why do you think this film has stood up to the test of time? Well, as I said, I think a lot of it has to do with the relationship between those two protagonists, um, Joe Buck and Razzo Rizzo, and the compassion compassionate relationship they form. Um, and I think there's also a lot of humor in the film. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, and, and I, bottom line, I think the performances are a big part of that. I think both John Voight and Dustin Hoffman give such beguiling performances. Um, they're hard to resist. Joe um, Ratta Rizzo, who in many ways is a very sad character, brings, you, feel, you, you find humor in his, in the performance of Dustin Hoffman. So in some ways it becomes a little sentimental, but I think that's one of the reasons the film has lasted as long as it has. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if, did, do you know if they did a screen test together to see what their chemistry was going to be like during that time? I'm not aware of anything like that. I, I obviously we showed some of John Voight's screen test in right, our film. Right. Um, and I'm not sure whether or not Joe Buck, uh, I'm sorry. I'm not sure whether or not Ratza Rizzo did a, uh, Sorry, let's go back over it. <laughs> go back, start that again. 
I'm so glad you're editing this. I'm not <laughs> sure whether or not Dustin Hoffman did a screen test. We have seen pictures that look like they were audition type pictures. Um, but, you know, there's a wonderful story about how he had to convince John Schlesinger to give him the role uh-huh. because John Schlesinger knew of his success in The Graduate. And he felt that that was not the right person to play Ratsa Rizzo. And Dustin Hoffman basically begged him to take him seriously for that role and met him down around 42nd Street. And he was all dressed up in the Ratsa Rizzo kind of garb. And um, John Schlesinger saw him in that scruffy costume and, and, and with, you know, not, not having shaved and looking really down and out. And he said, yeah, you can do it. Yeah, well, he's brilliant. Brilliant in this role, brilliant, and and John Voight is also. I'm mean, equally. I mean, he's just, obviously they're opposites, complete opposites. But he's so cute and adorable, that little baby face, you know. And that's why everyone was so attracted to him in in, in real life and in this film too, for sure, for sure. Um, you decided, okay, so you're interspersing. We t- let's talk a little bit why you chose to intersperse because you have a lot of scenes with. This is not a film about Vietnam, everyone who's listening, <laughs> but Vietnam. So let's talk a bit about that, why you decided and chose to do that also in this film. Well, we do use flash cuts and little images of Vietnam, as well as some of the protest movements that are going on. It's all to remind people what was what was in the air, what was what was impacting the filmmakers, what was making them and and United Artists for that matter feel comfortable making this film. They understood that there was something going on in this country that people just needed to pay attention to. You know, before that we were looking at pretty slick movies and 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 costly films that were not doing well. And the studios were taking notice. You know, they they felt like maybe this audience is changing. Maybe the mainstream is changing. And it's time to pay attention to what they're living through. Um, they're looking, they're hungry for something more realistic. And so all of the, as I say, all of these things were in the air. What makes Vietnam um, particularly important is that this is what triggered a lot of questioning about authority. Um, we hadn't seen that before. Right. Uh, so I think that the fact that Vietnam really ignited the questioning of authority, ignited the protest movements. I mean, protest movements, whether it was black power or women's liberation or gay liberation, those may not have happened without Vietnam happening. Because, again, it was all about how subversive can we be? How can we push back on all of these things? And before you know it, society and young people in particular are questioning an awful lot. So I felt like that was a really important thing to bring out. I don't think we would have had Midnight Cowboy without those. No, no, I agree with you. I agree with you. Because, it, it, again, we talked about the zeitgeist, uh, you know, during this time. Uh, but it spawned a whole nother genre of filmmaking, new, you know, New York filmmaking with Scorsese and gosh, the, the list goes on and on with the different filmmakers that were spawned during that. Right now, I'm going across my top, off, off the top of my head. I don't remember everybody either. And you show that too. 
you know, like Mean Streets and Taxi Driver. And, you know, of course, we have De Niro and Pacino and, you know, different kinds of actors that also came out of that era. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Did you, did they, I mean, obviously, nobody knows what's, when they do something, what's going to transpire afterwards and the kind of effect it's going to have on society or on movie making itself. But it did change the way movies were being made during the 70s. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think I think you're right to say that no one really knows what what effect their work is going to have. And we were looking at the big picture. We were looking at, you know, not only the era that made Midnight Cowboy, but how Midnight Cowboy then made an era. Right. And if a movie has that much influence, it's another reason why we made it, because it was it was uh, it's another reason why we made Desperate Souls. Right. Because this movie did have huge influence. It didn't just come out and then disappear. It, it continued to have an influence in the 70s. Um, and people harken back into it, harken back to it even today. And I'm happy to say that our audiences, though there are many people who are, were old enough to have seen Midnight Cowboy when it came out or soon after. There are an awful lot of young people who are coming to our film who truly are interested in it because it's impacted their filmmaking. I was on a hike yesterday with a gentleman whose son is in film school right now. And I was telling him about this interview today. And he said his son, who's 20, one had just seen Midnight Cowboy for the first time, and, and it really did affect him. And, and obviously, you know, in film school, you're going to be watching a lot of, as you know, a lot of different movies and get a feel for what style you might want to make movies in, too. Yeah. So having said that, what attracted you to become a documentary filmmaker? Well, I did not go to film school. I really started out first in painting, but then in documentary photography. So that that's really the roots of all of this. And then I took a number of paths in between that and making movies. But the, the, my connection to documentary photography and my concern about what goes on in the world really had so much to do with this. I was at one point I, I had founded and was running a documentary film festival called Full Frame. And so I looked at many, many documentaries. Um, it all fed, you know, it's kind of like my movies. You never know what one particular thing has to do with what you end up doing, but all of these factors are are play roles in one's life as as we make decisions like that. And so, by the time I made the loving story, which was my first right. documentary, again, it almost seemed inevitable that I would do it. Right. Interesting. Interesting. Do you, what are you working on next? Um, you know, there are a number of things that are simmering, but I'm I'm not quite ready to talk about them, but I'll be happy to once we know what they are. Great. And I definitely want you back on the show when you do have your next documentary. I love documentaries, as you know. Um, Where can people see uh, Desperate Souls, Dark City, and The Legend of Midnight Cowboy? Well, we're we're thrilled that Zeitgeist is distributing the film. Um, It is being shown starting Friday at the Film Forum in New York and will play for two weeks there. Um, It is also being starting in L.A. on the same date um, with the Lemley Theaters, the Lemley Royal and the um, Encino Town Center and then in Glendale on June 30th. But if, if you go to the Zeitgeist website, you'll see 
oh, close to 15 or 20 other locations where the film will be showing nationwide. So we get very excited about these nationwide screenings. And please follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram as well, because we'll be announcing all of those screenings. Great, Nancy. Great. Well, everybody should see this on the big screen, as I always preach to everyone, that this is a film that needs to be seen on the big screen. And it's one you can watch over and over and over again, because I got so much, even the second time I've watched it, and I'd like to watch it again, because there's so much to this film that it's just complete. It's really fascinating. You've done a wonderful, wonderful, we've made a wonderful movie. So thank you so much, Nancy. Thank you for being back on the show. It's always good thank to interview you. It was really fun being here. Thank you so much. Thank you. To all my wonderful, loyal listeners, your love of film allows me to do what I do. If you want to support me, the best way to do that is to hit the subscribe button on the iHeart Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And of course, on YouTube, subscribing matters. If you are feeling really compelled, I want to hear from you. Have a burning question, comment, or review? Drop me an email at thejampriceshow.com. Thank you for listening. Jan Price talks to the movers and shakers in the film business. The Jan Price Show, all about movies.